Well, if you have a Bible with you, get to Psalm 90, right in the middle, practically, of your Bibles. A big book, book of Psalms. If you're not familiar with how a Bible's laid out, there are books, and there are big numbers and small numbers. Big numbers are chapters, small numbers are verses. So I mean Psalm, big number 90. If we had only known, ever begun a sentence like that? Maybe more times than you'd like to think about. If we'd only known this, then we wouldn't have done that. If we had known that it was going to go there, we wouldn't have bothered with it all this time. It's disappointment. Sometimes that phrase, if we had only known, is just simple disappointment. Sometimes, sometimes it's bitter. Proverbs 13.12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hearts are sick or broken when we hope and the hope is not fulfilled. But a desire fulfilled, the same proverb says, is a tree of life. It's good. It's satisfying. It's good when we want and get. At least it feels good. Sometimes it is good. And it's hard when we hope and we want, when we expect, and then it doesn't come to pass. There are disappointments in all kinds of shapes and sizes. You probably had disappointment yesterday. I had one small disappointment yesterday. I ordered a new pair of running shoes. I'm getting a hole underneath my big toe, my current one. So I went online and picked out a pair and ordered them, had them shipped to me, and I got them in the mail yesterday. But not them. I instead got a pair of black pumps in the mail. <laughs> Thanks, Coles. A little disappointed. A little disappointed with their customer service and their return policy. Thanks, Coles. Some lady on the other side of the country, I'm sure, is really disappointed. She wanted black pumps and got these bright green running shoes instead. So there was that. I was also playing catch with my son yesterday. And, you know, he's getting them in there better and better all the time. Every now and then there's a wayward one. And uh, every now and then I try to help him out. Other times I just try to smile as I walk to go get it and pray during that time. And so yesterday he threw a wild one and he said, oh, that was disappointing. And I said, yeah, it, it was. But you get an A for using the word disappointing when you're only eight. That's a good thing. Small disappointments, right? And then there are some huge ones. There are some significant and painful disappointments that you've known when the tests come back positive, when the marriage is on the brink and heading south every day, when the kids hate mom, when you're on the last leg of life, you're rounding the fourth corner and the NASCAR track of life and you, you wonder, what, what was it all about? 
when you're qualified for every stinking job you apply for and you just can't get it. Lord, I want to work. I want to do what's right. I need to provide for my family. And why? Why is this so hard? Those are big disappointments. Real heartache doesn't come simply when life is hard. It seems like real heartache comes when something is hard and we didn't think that it should be hard. Or we forgot that it should be hard. So what do we expect out of this life? What shapes our expectations? What do we expect from God? And what do we do with disappointment? Disappointment's a universal problem. We could say it's a problem even for Christians, but really probably more accurately would be it's a problem especially for Christians, this thing of disappointment. Because if you're not a Christian, you're, maybe you're an atheist, you're an agnostic, what is disappointment? I don't know, some sort of weird chemical feeling. It's just biochemical. It's, it's, it's just about organisms. And, and you can't put your finger on what a feeling is and why it's there without God and without meaning in this world. But those of us who think that there's meaning in this world, and there's a God behind it, and there's orchestration of it, and he's good, and he's wise, and he's in control, disappointment is tough. It, it requires taking reality, comparing it with the word of God, taking reality and comparing it with our, our expectations and figuring out where those two worlds are separated. Psalm 90 is all about disappointment. It doesn't look like it at first, but it is. It's wrestling with disappointment. The disappointment of death is assumed in Psalm 90. The disappointment of unfulfilled expectations of all kinds, some big, some massive. The disappointment of other people, because that by itself can just be a world of frustrations. Psalm 90 deals with the temptation to wonder if it was all worth it. Psalm 90 deals with the temptation to entertain another world if we had only known. If we had only known, we wouldn't have bothered. So look at Psalm 90. It's a prayer of Moses, it says at the heading of it, Moses the man of God. And it reads like this. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood, they're like a dream. Like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are seventy or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, 
Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. That's what God's word says to us this morning. This Sunday and next Sunday, I want to focus on this psalm. It's so rich. There's so much background to it. And I don't want to rush it. Today, I want us to see four lessons from Psalm 90. So if you're following along on the sermon notes page in the back of your bulletin, you can see some blanks there. And number one is this, the first section of Psalm 90 is that we're fragile and fleeting, but God is forever. Us, we're fragile and fleeting, but God is forever, verses 2 to 6. Hopefully you saw that it's stressed in these verses. God is eternal. Verse 2, before there were ever any mountains, before the earth was formed. And verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are... Like yesterday when it's passed, just like a, a watch in the night. In other words, he's really, really, really old. I remember in kindergarten that kids would try to impress each other with how, dad, how old their dads were. Anyone else have this? So you'd have, you know, it'd, it'd grow. My dad's 30, my dad's 35, my dad's 40, my dad's 84. None of us knew that his dad wasn't. We were like, cool, that's, that's sweet. We didn't know it might not be a good thing to have an 84-year-old dad when you're in kindergarten. <laughs> Middle-aged people don't like to talk about the growing number. Old people do, though, don't they? They like to, I'm 98. You know, they, they like to brag about how they're getting up there and what they've seen and experienced, and rightly so. There's some proverbs about that. And kids seem to like big numbers in general, even though they don't know what it means to be 98 and how painful your knees might be or, or how hard digestion is. But, but they love big numbers. Well, even if your dad is a thousand years old, Psalm 90 says, it's like God would say, yeah, that was like a day for me. That was like a night shift. And even that's not fully accurate because God is infinitely old. He's eternal. He's always been. He's unchanging too. That's what's meant at the end of verse 2 when it says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Go back as far as you can. There's a God there. Go forward as far as you can imagine. There's God there. And it's the same God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not just eternal, but he's self-sustaining and unchanging. And hence, he's steady. He's reliable. He is solid. And there is nothing like him in this world. 
Biologists say that you can never step into the same river twice. A river is fluid, right? It's moving, it's changing, it's morphing by the, by the second. Well, you too are like that. Right? You're losing skin, losing hair. You have this new ache, this new pain. We're not like God. Oh, human beings are like God in many ways. The Bible says that we were made in his image. And even though sin has come into the world, even though there's a fall, we call it, and things have changed, the image is marred, the image we were made in to reflect his glory. But there's still some hint of it there. There's still many ways in which we're like God as the crown of his creation. But there are many ways in which we're not like God. There are many ways in which we've never been like God, even before the fall. And even more ways now, since the fall, that we are not like God. And Psalm 90, obviously, is camping out on the contrast. Human beings and God, miles apart. And it's a good thing for us to reflect on our frailty. It's a good thing for us to reflect on it devotionally or worshipfully, or biblically, however you want to describe it. Oh, we all reflect on our fragility, right? We complain about this sickness, and and that hurt, and that we're hungry again, and how we don't feel good today, and this and that. We all know that we're getting older, and we know sometimes that's not so good. And so we reflect on our frailty, but it's good to reflect on our frailty devotionally. To know that he's God and he's self-sustaining. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't need food. And so he's our strength. It's a good thing for us to know that we need sleep. We need food. We need constant care. We need vigilant watching. We need help from others like doctors and nutritionists and surgeons. Not God. And we die, unlike God. Our lives are fleeting. Verse 3 says we're just dust. We're just dust bunnies. Uh, Not that we're that meaningless, but comparatively, we're that light compared to God, that transient. Where do dust bunnies come from? I don't know. There they are. Where do they go? Well, sometimes you pick them up, and sometimes, I don't know, maybe the dog ate them. It just went away, I guess. Our lives are fragile and fleeting. We're dust, and we will one day die. Death is the culmination of all of our fragility and weakness. There are hints, even from the moment we're born, that we're born weak and needy and dependent, cold, hungry, crying, Yes, cute, but utterly dependent. From our first sickness on, it's like the clock is ticking. Eventually, this is going to be a sickness that we don't recover from, a wound that we don't have healed in this life. The frustration, the fragility, and the fleeting nature of life grows and grows until it's literally the nail in the coffin that we call death. Psalm 90 reminds us that death is inevitable. It reminds us that death is final. And it reminds us that life is short. It happens, this thing of death, 
soon and sooner than we expect. Psalm 5, I'm sorry, Psalm 90 verse 5 says that life is like being swept away in a flood. The flood just comes and boom, you're gone. It says it's like a dream, like a blip on the screen. It's like grass that's renewed in the morning, verse 5 says, but then verse 6, but in the evening it fades and withers. In the arid Near Eastern geography and topography, the morning rain, I guess, would cause grass to become green immediately. And then a scorching afternoon sun could wipe that grass out almost just as quickly. So Psalm 90, when it uses this analogy about grass renewed in the morning and then brown and scorched by the evening, it's not telling us that life is like grass which can eventually go bad. It's not saying that life is like grass which eventually goes dormant and brown in wintertime. It's saying life is like grass, like a daily life and death cycle like they would have known in the ancient Near East. Life is short. Like James 4 says, it's a vapor. Here today and gone tomorrow. Oh, I know some get more than just a day, but some don't. Some get 70, some get 80 years, some get 108, some get three. But it's all like a vapor here today and gone tomorrow. But why? Why do we die? Why does life hurt? Why do our bodies break? Why is life fleeting and fragile? Well, Psalm 90 gives us an answer. Notice verse 7 begins with four. So it's already described our withering lives. And then it says, for we are brought to an end by your anger. It's going to go on to explain the reason why life is fragile and life is fleeting. It's the second thing that we'll talk about today. That we are wayward and weary, but God is wrathful. We are wayward and weary, and God is wrathful. Verses 7 to 11 describe this. By wayward, I mean we're sinful. We've rebelled. We've gone astray, the Bible describes it. We've ignored his commands. We've gone against him. Everything we do falls short of his glory that he's called us to live in light of and to live before him. We're wayward, and because God is righteous and holy, he is wrathful. I know that sounds strong. It's not the only attribute of God. Yes, he is love. But he is also holy, holy, holy. He is so holy, as we said last week just in passing, that angels who haven't sinned, who are designed for his praise, can't apparently share the same ground with him. They must fly as they sing his praise. They can't look upon him. They must cover their face. God is wrathful. It's described here in Psalm 90, like it says in verse 7, that life is brought to an end by your anger. 
and by your wrath. Verse 9 says that we pass away under your wrath. So for us to say that God is wrathful, if that's all we say, then that would be wrong. But I don't think we're, we're in jeopardy of possibly overemphasizing that. In other eras of the church, the thing that was surprising, the thing that was difficult to believe was that God could be merciful and loving. Not that he could be wrathful. Not that he would be a righteous king who judges and upholds. In our day, we can easily imagine a nice, loving king who likes to just share his food and listen to our jokes or that kind of thing. But we can't imagine a God who has designed something called hell. The New Testament puts layers and contours on the thing of God's wrath and it describes it in terms of a lake of fire. It's burning forever and ever. And those who are in it cry day and night. It is like they're being eaten from the inside out by an intestinal worm that is never satisfied and never dies. The worm doesn't die. And the fire isn't quenched. Jesus told us those things. God is wayward. I'm sorry, we are wayward. And because of that, God is wrathful. And there's the answer to why life is fragile and fleeting and why there's such a thing as death in this world. It's because of sin. It's shown to us right here in Psalm 90, the connection. We're brought to an end. We die because of your anger. We pass away under your wrath. Just like God warned on day one. The day you eat of the tree, you shall surely, what? Die. Or like the Apostle Paul says, the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. You say, death, what kind of death? Well, it's death that's both physical and spiritual and even eternal. You see, the day that Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't die physically right away, immediately, but they started to die. Death started to grow, and eventually they did die. So that Genesis 5 gives us this genealogical list of Adam and his offspring, and after each one almost, it just gives us this little refrain, this chorus, and he died. So and so lived so many years, and he had these kids, and he died, and then these kids died, and then their kids died, and they died, and they died, and they died, to show that God is faithful to his promises, yes, even his promises of judgment. The day you eat of the tree, you'll surely die. In his mercy, they didn't immediately physically die right there, end of story, close the book, or start over. But they began to die, and sure enough, they did physically die. And right then, they did immediately spiritually die. Ephesians 2 says we were born dead in our trespasses and sins. And this death eventually becomes an eternal spiritual death. A spiritual eternal death that Jesus describes in terms of what I just did. In terms of hell. In terms of fire, torment, anguish that doesn't stop. That's really bad news. And yet, there's more to the story. It's 
it's also bad news that it's not great until you get there. So if you're thinking, well, maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't, but you know, maybe there's sin, maybe there's not, but I mean, until then, let's just have a good time. And don't, don't you see that there are several hints right here in Psalm 90 that tell us that sin isn't just bad, and it isn't just wrong, and it doesn't just eventually land you in hot water with God. Sin is wearisome. At the end of verse 7, it says we are dismayed under God's wrath. Not we will be dismayed once we get hit with it, but under it we're dismayed. We know our consciences bear guilt. We know there's trouble. So verse 9 says life is like a sigh. Yeah, it means it's short, but also means it's sometimes exasperating. It's... The sigh. Verse 10 tells us that however long life is, 70, 80, 7, or 8, 107, 108, it can just be described as this. It's toil and trouble. And then the end is always the same, just flies away. If you're visiting with us, welcome to Desert Springs Church. We're after truth, and there's joy on the other side. We have a God who's not just wrathful. And we see that in the stories of the Bible over and over. So this is a good place to remind ourselves that this is a psalm written by Moses. And there are stories behind this psalm. Remember, if you've been with us in other weeks, we've seen how some psalms are written by David, and you can go to 1 Samuel or 2 Samuel and see something happening there in the life of David, and it gives some light, some illumination to that journal page, diary page of David's life in the psalm. Gives you a sort of what that date was, maybe. Tells you what was going on in that life. There's an autobiography or a biography happening earlier in this big book we call the Bible. And here we have a psalm for Moses, but we have stories about Moses, actually written by Moses himself. So turn to Numbers 20 with me. I think it's worth doing some work here to see what's going on in Psalm 90. Moses' life has all kinds of ups and downs, all kinds of good days and bad days, humanly speaking. But Numbers 20 is, is an especially dark chapter in his life. So it gives us insight into why I, for instance, introduced this sermon as one about disappointment. Numbers 20 has at least five big disappointments. Varying degrees of disappointment. Some are smaller than others. Many of them are pretty big, though. Let me show you five disappointments in Numbers 20. The first is the death of Miriam in verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month. The people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried there. That's just five words in the original Hebrew about Miriam's death and burial. Amazingly, it's stated so briefly, so unceremoniously, that you'd think she's kind of a throwaway character in the story, right? She's the butler that never even introduced her name or her, his name in the movie, and you don't remember him afterwards. No, 
Miriam's not like that. She's a huge character in God's story of the Old Testament. She was Moses' older sister. Remember, Moses wrote Psalm 90. So this is the death of Moses' older sister. She's also the one that when Moses' mother laid him in the reeds to save his life, the only hope that he would survive was to put him in the Nile and hope that someone would pick him up and, and keep him and save him and raise him as their own. It was Miriam who watched the whole thing from the edge of the Nile until an Egyptian princess picked Moses up out of the water and he was saved. She cared for her little brother. After the Red Sea, God's people celebrate. Guess who leads them? Miriam. Miriam leads the Israelite women in song and music and dance. So she's some kind of worship leader and a multi-talented worship leader. She was called a prophetess, a female prophet. There are times in the Old Testament where Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, those three, and those three only, go into the tent of meeting to meet with God. By all accounts, she was the female leader of the whole nation. She wasn't perfect. There was this one incident where she and her brother Aaron criticized Moses' choice in a wife. And for that, the Lord punished her. He gave her leprosy in Numbers 12. After Numbers 12, Miriam's not mentioned. She gets leprosy, and you hear nothing about Miriam all the way until Numbers 20, where again, her death and burial is described in five Hebrew words. But that's no insignificant person, not to Moses. She died. That's the first disappointment in Numbers 20. The second is a typical one in these stories of this section of God's word. It's the people doubting and complaining. So look at verse 2. Now there was no water for the congregation. They're out in the wilderness. They, They don't have water. They're desperate. So they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And they quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. We wish that God would have just killed us like he killed others in judgment. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. And there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly. No no response. To the entrance of the tent of the meeting. And they fell on their faces. Sure, they fell on their faces because it's the tent of meeting and God's in there or going to be in there. So it's worship they fell on their faces. But, boy, I'd... I'd wager that it's more, they fell on their faces in tears and frustration and praying, aggravation about these people. People doubt and complain. You can see the frustration written all over the story here. Frustration for Moses. They're part of the disappointment, a constant disappointment. Then a third one, Moses strikes the rock. And there are devastating consequences for what happens here. 
So start reading here in verse 7. Right after this, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before the eyes of the people to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to the people, Hear now, you rebels. <laughs> He's calling names. He's mad. You can see it, right? Listen up, idiots. Dummies. And what's he say? He says, listen up. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Like we've done before, dummies? Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you didn't believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. What? What did Moses do wrong? Well, to be honest, it's not totally clear what Moses did wrong. In Exodus 17, the Lord told Moses to provide water from a rock by taking his rod and hitting the rock, and water gushed out. This is a different story. You might have noticed that I stressed in verse 8, here God says, tell the rock, not hit the rock, tell the rock. So some have said, Moses didn't tell the rock. He, he just kind of maybe was on cruise control. Uh, the staff is used for most things around here, right? It's, uh, you put it in the water and the water turns blood red. Uh, you put it in the water and that's what God uses as the means to part the Red Sea miraculously. The staff. I mean, you hit a rock and water came out. And so God says, I'm going to give water from a rock again. Tell the rock to give water. And you go, okay, boom. And you, you hit it. Not listening carefully. It's more than that, though. It's not trusting God somehow, somewhere, some way. It isn't exactly clear what Moses did wrong. It's probably a difference between telling the rock and striking the rock. And some have said, maybe you've heard this preached, I may have preached it before, that perhaps God was so protective of Moses not hitting the rock a second time because 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that Jesus was that rock. That rock was an analogy of life-giving water. And Jesus is that life-giving water, according to John chapter 7. And if Jesus is that rock, then you don't strike it twice because he was only stricken once. That might be true. It preaches well, doesn't it? No place in Scripture does it make that connection exactly. It doesn't really matter. The point is this. It doesn't seem like much. And Moses will not enter the promised land. And that's been his life. That's been everything. If I'd only known, I mean, I would have fought an Egyptian army. I wouldn't have done this. I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't put up with them. I thought I was going there. I thought I was going to more than see it from a mile away. I thought I was going to live in it. I thought I was going to know what a land flowing with milk and honey actually is. Could you imagine the disappointment? 
That's a big one. Maybe the biggest here. A quick one, a small one, is that the king of Edom won't let the people pass through the land. So Moses, verse 17 and 18, he goes to the king of Edom and he says, We're traveling through. Can we go through your land? We promise not to eat your crops or take your stuff. Let us through. It's faster than going around. The king of Edom says no. Sometimes it's just as simple as detours. Flat tires on your way to vacation. Disappointment has all shapes and sizes. And then there's the death of Aaron at the end. The death of Aaron. At the end of Numbers 20, Aaron is Moses' brother. Moses' confidant. Moses' right-hand man. Literally at one point, Moses has to pray with his arms held up high all day for the sake of the army. And he can't. His arms eventually will drop. And so Aaron holds up his arms. Or at least one of them. There's another guy that held up the other arm, but I don't remember his name. Aaron's the high priest of the people, right? He's the guy in charge of the worship for this whole thing. The whole nation. He's second in command in the nation. He's Moses' VP. Except in our country, VPs and presidents don't really get along. They don't like each other. They go their own ways. He's your chief of staff. He's the last of Moses' family of that generation. He may be one of the last of those who went through it all. One of the last of the few who were actually slaves in Egypt. And they just haven't heard the stories from their dad. They, they knew it themselves. And yeah, he's done some boneheaded stuff too. Not only did he impugn Moses for marrying that girl, just like his sister did. He also did the whole golden calf thing, which is real bad. But time and time again, Aaron has always repented and he's kept on. And so he's Moses' buddy. He understands what Moses is going through like no one else in the world does. When the people complain, they hit their faces and cry and pray together. So in light of that, read Numbers 20 and verse 24. Let Aaron be gathered to his people, for he shall not enter the land. He shall not enter the land, the Lord says, that I've given to the people of Israel. Because you, Moses... Because you, because you rebelled against my command of the waters of Meribah. Because the rock thing, again. The rock thing? That messes up Aaron's chances of going? Yeah. Take Aaron and Eleazar his son and bring them up to Mount Hor and strip Aaron of his garments. He's no longer in charge. Put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron shall be gathered to his people and shall die there. And that's exactly what happened. And when he died, this shows you the significance of Aaron's role in the nation. The whole nation wept for 30 days. Can you imagine so much riding on you as Moses? Miriam's given leprosy because she ripped on your wife? You'd feel guilty about that. You do something wrong with the rock, you messed up something, you didn't listen, or you doubted that it just would, you know, the voice would just work, so you thought you had to hit it and hit it again just for extra measure. And now not only are you not entering the promised land, which has been in your life, Aaron, your best man, isn't either. What a sad chapter. So much heartache in one chapter. And get this, it's not the last chapter for Moses. It's Aaron's last chapter. It's Miriam's last chapter. I bet Moses wished it was his last chapter. 
Just get me out of here then. I don't have sis. I don't have bro. I don't have anybody. You're going to leave me here with these creeps? But the Lord had other plans. There are more chapters to go till you get to the end of Deuteronomy where Moses dies. He has to go on. And so he writes Psalm 90 somewhere along the way. And what he says in it is our third point. Could summarize it like this. We are desperate and dependent, but God is a dwelling place. A dwelling place. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. Now, we'll get to that idea of God being a dwelling place in just a minute, but we can't jump there too early because it's a big jump. Remember, in Psalm 90, when we were just talking about it, we left off with God's wrath in our death and us being in trouble, sin, judgment, and death. Death, both physical and eternal. That's a big jump to go from wrath to God is home. You see, we're desperate. And we need nothing less than mercy and forgiveness. What we need is his wrath quenched. We need his wrath removed. Like Psalm 130 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you're keeping track of this stuff, everyone's in trouble. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. But forgiveness, not like he just looks the other way. Not like he just says, yeah, he's done some screwy things, but he's a good old boy, as they say in the South. It means he means well, like the Duke boys. And that's how we go in. We're like the Duke boys. No. We needed someone to come and be righteousness for us and take punishment for us. Because God is a God of justice as he is a God of mercy. And Romans 5 describes this, the central message of the New Testament. This is why Jesus and his coming is so everything for Christians. This is why the cross is so emblematic of their hope in their life and their love. Because of what it says in Romans 5. That as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death came through sin... So death spread to all men because all sinned. That's what Adam gave us. But the free gift from Jesus is not like that. For if by the transgression of the one, many died, that's why death came into this world, because Adam sinned and he died, much more to the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. In other words... As through one man's disobedience in the garden, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the second Adam, who was tempted, not in a lush garden, but tempted by Satan in the wilderness while fasting, and yet obeyed. Through his obedience, the many will be made righteous, called righteous, declared righteous, because he took their punishment, and gave his righteousness. That's what Paul says is of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day rose again. The gospel weekend, we call it. Or what's been on the screen this morning in the center as we 
center screen as we've been singing, that Christ died once for all, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones to bring us to God. I pray that you know that. I pray that today, if you don't know that, you would turn from your sin and rebellion, your waywardness and weariness. You would flee to the righteousness and mercy that comes in Jesus and only in Jesus. And you would receive it. You would trust. You would embrace it. You would call out to him and ask him for it. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And when that happens, our sins are not only forgiven, and not only is heaven our hope versus eternal judgment, but in the meantime, and forever, God dwells with us. You have been our dwelling place in all generations. It's amazing that Moses would say that. I mean, a guy who's fixated on getting to the land, getting to the land. Oh, they did more sin. It's going to slow us down. He's going to hold us up. He's, a whole generation has to die off. But gets to the land, gets to the land, gets to the land. It's like he's on a racehorse. And then he can't get to the land. And he says, God has always been our dwelling place. Not the land where he said he'd dwell, but he's, he himself has always been our dwelling place. Amazing that he would say it. On the other hand, how could he say anything else? His faith was shaken. His hopes were redirected. He had to look beyond the land. Disappointment led to greater hope. So Psalm 91 probably on the same page as your, your Bible, as Psalm 90, that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He's our refuge. He's our fortress. He's the one in whom we trust. It's under his wings that we're covered and protected. He's a shield. He's a buckler. We dwell in him. And that's what Revelation 21 says. The end of the story. We read it last week. That in the end, God will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll be their God. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. No longer death. No longer any disappointment. God's dwelling is our security and our satisfaction. But we're not there yet. We're on a pilgrimage as Christians. We talked about that last week, and it means that we're still dependent. There's still work to do, and verses 12 to 17 prove that we're still dependent, even if we're forgiven, and even if God is our dwelling place. Next week, we'll focus on verses 12 to 17. Those can be summarized as this, that we're to pursue and pray for several priorities. These verses show us what God wants from us. And hence, what we should pursue, and like Moses, what we should pray for. There are four to eight, depending on how you break them up there at the end of Psalm 94, to eight different priorities, again, that we'll focus on next week, and that will be more practical about the tools that are needed for dealing with disappointment. But before I wrap this up, just one more quick thing. Let's think through, just in bullet point fashion, several ways in which... Psalm 90 is just what we need. 
it hits us right where we live. Remember those Nike commercials in the 80s? Bo knows. Bo Jackson does baseball. He does football. And they would also have these commercials where he's, you know, he's doing golf. And uh, I think they ended with him doing hockey. And he didn't do that one. But he did everything else, right? Bo knows. Bo knows everything. Bo knows golf. Bo knows bowling. Bo, Bo knows cheerleading. Maybe not. But, but Psalm 90 is like that. Psalm 90 is like the Swiss Army knife of Psalms. It's like Bo Jackson. Psalm 90 knows about waiting. It knows about saying how long. It knows about that tension between our timing and God's timing. Psalm 90 knows about death. There's a stink of death all over it. Psalm 90 knows about losing loved ones and getting old and being sick and feeling frail. Psalm 90 knows about sin and its horrible consequences but the abundant mercy and steadfast love that we can be glad in. So Psalm 90 knows about a fight for satisfaction. That's why it says, satisfy us with your love every day so we sing. Psalm 90 knows about disappointment too. That seemingly cruel change of what you thought was a given and then it hit a brick wall. Psalm 90 knows about the difference between our plans and God's plans. So we should say, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. Psalm 90 even knows about the need for time management. Teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. Psalm 90 knows about work and wanting to find meaning and purpose in your work. Establish the work of our hands. Give it sense and purpose. Make it last. And Psalm 90 knows what we really need. We need God. Nothing less. And really, ultimately, nothing else. He gives us himself.